Good morning. For the Men's Barbecue Fellowship, one thing I could promise you that we're planning on having for you men is meat. <laughs> so you guys should come out. But uh, Scott Weaver is big into uh, smoking food, so we're planning on smoking some tri-tip ribs or pork or something good. So we're still going to work it out. i got to get together with Scott, but uh, it'll be a good time. We'll have a time of fellowship and uh, devotional and stuff. So mark that on your calendars for the 18th. Um, if you can turn with me to Psalm chapter 147, what we're going to take up today is finish off, hopefully, Lord willing, the attributes of God. We've been going through them, and uh, we have about four left to go through, so this leaves me approximately uh, 10 minutes per attribute, so we're going to give it a whirl and see if we can get through them. But just a reminder, the attributes of God is, is a study to look at who God is. They reveal to us uh, what our God is like, and uh, there's nothing better, <clears throat> no better use of our mind than to comprehend and meditate on who God is and to try to understand our infinite God. All the attributes of God's are uh, qualities inherent to the subject, and they identify, distinguish, and analyze the subject, and all the attributes work together in harmony with, with one another. Uh, there's never an overemphasis of one attribute over the other. They all work harmoniously together. And not only in perfect harmony, but without God even stressing about it. He doesn't sit there and go, oh, I'm loving and yet righteous, and how am I going to balance these two out? He perfectly does it. And this is who our God is. He's an amazing God. And um, the whole purpose of the study of the attributes of God is just to give us a further understanding of who God is, what he's like, but also as children of God, we are to resemble who our God is. He has not only taken these attributes, or these attributes not only inherit to him, but he's placed these attributes within us, and we have been created in God's image. So, one of the attributes we're going to look at this morning is God is omniscient, or all-knowing. Now, there's no way possible we're going to be all-knowing. That's only God. But we can think. He's given us the ability to reason, to think. He's given us minds to comprehend, to uh, meditate on him. And he's promised to give us knowledge and wisdom of himself, if you ask. So this is what he wants to fill our lives with. And as we look at God, the more we'll become like God. The more you, you spend time with God, the more you can resemble his character and who he is. The farther apart from God you are, the more you'll act like the world. But it's hard to get around God and spend time with the Lord Jesus and not resemble him and take on his qualities. So we're going to look at the first one is God is omniscient. That means God is all-knowing. Now, as I said, we probably have about 10 minutes per thing. But I'd like to just look at the, the, the basis of these attributes and then bring some practical examples of it. But in Psalms 147, look at verse 3. It says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. It's an amazing thing to comprehend what God knows. He's not bound by time. He's eternal. But God knows the past, the present, the future. He knows everything. He knows every possible circumstance. 
He knows every one of our thoughts. He knows every single individual in this world and could tell you exactly what he's, they're going to do in the next five minutes without even breaking a sweat. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. These few verses I'm going to read for you in Matthew have brought me great comfort over the years. And, um, and not only does God know everything, but he knows exactly what we need and he's able to provide and care for us. And verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than clothing and the body more than body more than clothing, or is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor wheat, reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? I think verse 27 we can apply all day long. How many of us sit here and stress over stuff and worry? Can you help it? Trust God. Stop worrying. Easier said than done, but we can't change it by worrying or stressing, is what he's writing here and the Lord is saying. Verse 28 says, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You know, Solomon was a man that was the richest man in the world, and he had all the glory that the queen of Ethiopia even came to see all this glory and the riches and the beauty that he had. Amazing, his house in which he dwelt in and the gold. But look at this. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, the lilies of the field, hmm. the creation of God. Now if God so clothes the grass of the fields which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What a tremendous lesson we can learn from the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount here as he's describing but how the Father knows everything we need. Nothing takes him by surprise. There's no events in our lives that, that, that all of a sudden God goes into a scramble, into a panic and say, I didn't see that coming. He knows. He knows everything and he's working everything according to his own knowledge, according to his own will, but he, he knows what's best for us. You know, the, the, we'll get into the sovereignty of God later on. But really, oftentimes in our life is we just don't trust God. We trust him for salvation, but we don't trust him with our life. How many times do we actually take our finances or our cares or whatever we have and really place it into God's hands? I was thinking about something this morning as I was meditating on how God is all-knowing in some of the, the circumstances that are coming up in my life. And I go, you know what? I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I just turn this over to the Lord? 
I really haven't trusted him. I'm trying to think of this and think of these different ways. Then all of a sudden, this peace came upon me. As I said, Lord, you work it out. He knows. He knows everything. He, he, he can work all circumstances and matter to come around to take us to where we want to go. If you just think about Joseph, Moses, he took Joseph from what? Being thrown in a ditch to second in control of Egypt? Behind Pharaoh? I mean, if he can lead him, taking Joseph, he went to Potiphar's house, and then he got ran out from there. He went into prison. And then from there, he rises up. Why? Because God knows all things, and he knows how to work circumstances out for his glory and for his benefit and for our benefit. He knows everything, and we just got to trust him. What we end up screwing up is when we take life into our own matters. We try to take our own hands and put them in into the, the pot and mix it up instead of letting the Lord really just work stuff out. You know, circumstances of life we don't always enjoy. Um, they'll depress us. They'll get us down. They'll be frustrating. They'll seem uh, they're leading to a, a, a dead-end road. But the Lord knows all, and he allows us to go down these roads. He's in complete control. He knows, and we got to trust him. Look at Matthew chapter 6, or uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 10. As I read in the Psalms, how he numbers the stars, and he names each and every one of them. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse uh, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the, hair, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more, of more value than many sparrows. Now, if you were to look at my head of hair, you probably wouldn't even be able to guess how many hairs I have on my head. Now, if I chose Ryan, you might be able to have a better shot at it. But, uh, or my brother, but... Uh, <laughs> But well, that's amazing. Without even a, a sweat, he can sit there and tell you how many hairs are in your head. It's amazing. And yet he cares for the sparrows, and not one falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. So we went dove hunting this last year. Whoever shot the most dove, I guess, was in the Father's will because he allowed you to hit them. But... Um, some theologians, I forget who it is that said, maybe it's Bill McDonald or someone recorded that uh, the father visits every funeral of every sparrow. He cares for the sparrow. But the whole lesson here is how much greater are we than the sparrows to God. And yet he cares for them. How much more does he not care for us? Look at uh, Matthew chapter 11. Just flip over. <clears throat> This is truly amazing, and this also, as each one of these attributes, as we look at them, I mean, if we had time, we'd be able to apply them to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he possessed every attribute of God fully. But this is truly amazing and shows the infinite knowledge and wisdom that God has. Look at verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done, because they did not repent. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works 
which were done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat cloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the, in, for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and the day of judgment than for you. Now, if you were to take time and actually meditate on this, you would see that God, in his infinite knowledge, not only knows what took place, what is going to take place, but knows the circumstances that if the revelation, if the light that was done with Jesus right at that day and time would have been done for Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And that, place, that city would have still been uh, remaining to this day. God knows all things. Not only does he know what's going to take place, but he knows every possible path that, that, that could actually come if he allows certain things to take place in our life. This is truly amazing to see that what God really knows. Now the question becomes is why didn't God go and show the light to Sodom? So that they would have repented. That's why you let God be God. But he reveals to us in our day and time what he's going to reveal to us. And the light that they had in Sodom and Gomorrah is what they had. But the fact is, is not so much to say, to point out that God should have done this or that. God, within his wisdom and knowledge, and within his workings, does what he does because he's sovereign and because he's God. But it just shows the infinite knowledge that God has. He knows everything. He knows what would happen if I turned, if I was driving down to Claremont Bible Chapel here. And I decided to turn left on Monta Vista or go straight across Baseline and turn left on uh, Indian Hill. And sometimes God in his grace and mercy gives us that green light to let us keep going because we would have gotten an accident going down Monta Vista. You know, there's so many things that, that God knows and he does on a daily basis within our lives that we don't even understand until we probably get to heaven. And you'll look back and you'll see where God has preserved and protected you and carried you along every step of the way because he knows. But there's the natural circumstances of life that just take place where we just let God be God and that we don't understand, we don't comprehend, but that we just trust him because he knows what's best for us. He knows and he allows us to go through things that conform us more to the image of his son. He allows us to go through circumstances to change us to mold us, that if he would have let us keep going the way we were going, we would go into the world and maybe be destroyed. We would lose our testimony. We'd end up in a path of destruction. You just trust God is in control. And to continue, as Job did, just trust God knows all. He knows all. It's easier said than done. But to really know, he has a detailed plan for every one of us. And the goal for us is to get in line with that plan and to trust him with our lives and let him work it out. God is all-knowing. He not only knows every possible circumstances, not only knows 
He created the heavens and the earth. He knows how all things work together. He knows everything. There's nothing that will ever take him by surprise. He is all-knowing. The next attribute we're going to look at is God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. Look at Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. It's been asked, uh, and it's a stupid question, but the question is, if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that he cannot lift? And that is not the purpose of the power of God. That is where our, our uh, finite minds try to dwell and trying to limit God and say that he is, there's a limit. But God's first revelation, and now he, throughout the scriptures, there's 56 times which he's revealed himself as the Almighty God. And in verse 17 and verse 1, as he talks to Abraham, he says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between you, between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face. God talked with him, saying, and onward it goes. But you see the revelation and the Hebrew word El Shaddai is that God is the almighty God, the all-powerful God. This is what God is revealing to Abraham. And what does he tell him? He says, tells him to walk before him and be blameless. And the right response, when we see the power and the might of God, is as Abram fell on his face before God. He fell down. It's not difficult to describe and to show the, 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 the power of God. Just look at creation. Look at the marvels of creation. Just gaze into the stars and how vast the universe is. How our earth is. The complexity of this earth and how all the natural um, environments work together perfectly. It's an amazing thing from the, the ecosystem of the ocean of the land, of everything, how God has perfectly designed it all. This goes back to his, his omniscience, that God doesn't even break a sweat when trying to design the beautiful butterflies and the, and the, the insects and the animals and to design us. God knows every complex and detail area of our life. He created us. How much more should we go to God because He's the one that created us. But not only is God seen in his almighty power in uh, creation, but also in the ability to save, to heal, to raise from the dead. God has limitless powers. Look at Psalms verses 30, chapter 33. Psalms 33, begin reading at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, 
and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Look at the power of God. He speaks, and it's done. Within a word of the Lord, he created the heavens and the earth. He just speaks. The power is limitless with God. And it's amazing that we should stand before God in awe of him and fall on our faces at the power and the might of God because he is truly amazing and wonderful. There's two types of limitations you can put on God. Now we say he's, he's all-powerful and he can do anything, which is in, its, in itself somewhat true, but there, there's a holding back that it's true that God, there's some things God cannot do. For illustration, there's two limitations. There's the natural and there's the self-imposed limitations of God. The natural would include that of God cannot lie. God cannot be tempted to sin. God cannot deny himself. These are things that God cannot do within his character. He cannot deny himself and who he is. He cannot cease to fully exercise his attributes and, and neglect any of them. God cannot lie, in which he's promised us eternal life. Everything that God has said in his word is going to come true. Every jot, every tittle, everything that has been declared in this book is going to come true fully. Because God is able to do it. There's the self-imposed limitations of God. Now you think of, what are these? This is what God has declared in his word. This is what God has revealed of himself that he has chosen within his own self to not do. What are some of these things? God chose not to spare his son. God chose not to spare his son. He let him go to the cross. He sent him to die for you and I. What an amazing thing, all the power that God has to create the heavens and the earth and everything else. Yet, he had to let his son go to the cross because there is no other way to save us. There was no other way to redeem sinners such as us. As powerful as God is, he could not save us without sending his son. Should make us stand in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God and his love for us. He did not spare his son in the wrath that was poured out upon him. Full atonement was made that day, our redemption, that the wrath of God was poured out in full upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He also chooses not to save every person. He has chosen within himself to allow man to have his free moral choice, to make his choices. This is a sovereign act of God in which he has declared within his word to say, I am going to allow man to have his say. This is amazing. Yet you take it, and we'll get into, if we have time, get into sovereignty a little later, but is that he is in absolute control, working everything after the counsel of his own will, yet declaring that man can make his own free moral choice and accept or reject the Savior, as we read in that simple passage over in Matthew, chapter 11, is that they did not repent. He holds man accountable for his rejection of the light in which is revealed to him. He holds man accountable for every choice that we make and we do. This is what he's declared. 
And yet it's amazing. You see broken homes. You see divorces go on. You see things. And you think, why doesn't God just grab that person and bring them back? He's chosen not to. He encourages us. He calls us. He, 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 he pleads with us to serve him. He beseech us, beseeches us to live for him. Yet not one person is he going to drag to heaven kicking and screaming. This is important because when we get into the sovereignty of God and we get into the doctrines of God and understanding who he is, a lot of times we take the sovereignty and we go way off into right field or we take the power of God and we say, this is who God is. And we misrepresent who God is because we don't take the entire scriptures together and understand them in its entirety, in which you'll end up with fatalism and you end up with God making people sin. Did, Adam, did he make Adam and Eve sin? Did he have any dealings with sin? No, he had nothing to do with it. It says in James, God's not tempted. He has nothing to do with your temptation or making you sin. He takes no pleasure in unrighteousness. But he's going to allow man to make his choices, and man suffers the consequences of his choices. Adam and Eve fully chose what they did in the garden, knew the word of God, and disobeyed it, and God held them accountable for it. As well as every single one of us, God allows each and every one of us to make our choices. And he holds you accountable. You know, oftentimes we say man can't change the heart, but God can. What do we really mean by that? You ever thought about that? God can change the heart. Does God just arbitrarily in a sovereign choice just turn on a switch and say you're going to live righteously? What that means is God is pleading within your spirit, with your mind, with your heart, tugging at you, working at you. Day in and day in and day out, night, wrestling with you, saying, repent, repent, repent. And he gives you the power to do it. But it's an amazing thing, and I don't understand it. And I remember one person was going through a separation, and the question came up is, why doesn't God just bring them back to me? Why doesn't he just change his heart and bring them back? And the frustration and the hurt and the pain that all the kids are experiencing and everything. God just allows man to make his choice, and he's declared it. Does it grieve God? Absolutely it grieves God. Is God given up on the individual? Absolutely no. Is he, is he tugging on his heart? Is the Holy Spirit working overtime and convicting if he is a believer, saying, come back to me, repent? Or if he's an unbeliever, is he working? Oh, Marie Short doesn't mind me using an example of her husband. They were separated for a number of years, and she just prayed for him. She prayed for him. And she prayed for him. And years later, he came back. Did God give up on her husband? No. A lot of times we think we know the answers, and we, we can work stuff out better than God, but the reality is, is we've got to trust God. Believe me, God wants every single one of us to walk after his ways and walk in his light and in his path. And he wants this assembly to flourish and everything else. But God is so sovereign and so able that he's going to take us 
sinners change our lives and work his will. We can go on and on with stories of how God works. He's amazing, and he knows all things, and he has the power to change lives. He has the power to save people, and just one individual that is saved is one of the greatest miracles. To take a sinner, a person rejecting Christ, rejecting God, to turn and to be reconciled back to God and to change them. Justin's an example just recently. We love it. We boast about Justin all day. No, not, not to give Justin a big head, but it's the work of God. He took this individual. We prayed for him for years before he got saved. Years. Did God ever rest on him? Absolutely not, he didn't. Neither does he rest on any of your relatives or anyone else. He has the power to save and the power to change lives, and he will do it, even in this wicked world in which they're rejecting Christ. And homosexuality is rampant, and, and, and pornography and everything else, God still saves, and he still works in people's lives. He's still able. He's never limited. But he has declared within himself to allow us to have our free choice. God has declared that, not man. God has. God has a right to declare it. He has a right to dictate what he wants. We, we get into Calvinism. Could he actually just choose people and save them and, and not choose other people? He could. He's God. But he hasn't declared that. He hasn't told us that. We run into some difficult passages like Romans 9 and so forth through the scripture, but don't forget the whole of the scriptures of the call for everyone to repent. In that Matthew chapter 11 that we went through, if you actually looked at, he went to these cities. The Lord Jesus Christ went himself and preached the gospel to these cities. And they rejected him. He said they did not repent. What do you expect out of them? He expected them to repent. He expected them to turn towards him. Now he holds them accountable. So it's what God has declared and all riddled through the Bible. It's written out a man's responsibility to respond to the natural the revelation that God has given him and to repent. To turn towards your creator. Our God is amazing in his power and uh, he's not limited. The same power that he used to create the heavens and the earth, the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead as the same power that he's keeping us in salvation. You are kept by the power of God unto salvation, it says in 1 Peter. And in Romans we see it's the power of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation, the enabling power that God is able to save a wretched sinner, to take someone that's in darkness and reveal who he is and to show the light of the glorious gospel shined upon them and for them to repent and to turn towards him. We can go on and on with the power of God. It's truly amazing. He's also given us the power to live victorious Christian lives. Just read Romans chapter 6. There's no reason for weak Christian lives. That same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that works within us to walk in newness of life and to live for him. He has given us a new nature. He's given us everything we need to live for him and to live a victorious Christian life. We're running out of time. We've got to move on to the righteousness. If God is righteous or God is just, this has to do primarily with the law, morality, and justice. 
within God there is no sin. That God really does everything that is right. And we need to follow after who God is and his righteousness. Look at Psalms chapter 11, verse 7. The Lord God is righteous. We'll start reading verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Turn over to um, chapter 19 of Psalms. And read in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. What an amazing God we have. But he's a righteous God. And when it comes to sin, God must punish sin. There is no if and buts about it. There's no way around the justness of God. In order for him to forgive a sinner, he must satisfy his righteousness. Now, his righteousness is always going to be fair and impartial. God's righteousness is always going to be right. There's not going to be any times in the judgment of God of where man can slip around and and, uh, get out of what's coming due to him. God is a righteous judge. And he will judge the sins of mankind. You know, it's interesting when you, you get into uh, the judgment of God and you go to the world. It's interesting how they like to do the, the scale um, evaluation. That, that if you were to lay out your good works versus your bad works, whichever one weighs out, tips the scale more, is where God's going to favor you. So if you you've have more good works than bad works, then you get to go into heaven. If you have more bad works than, than uh, good works, then you get to go to hell. And it's just, this is the reasoning of man, the different individuals I've talked about. How can God condemn a good man to hell? I had a friend of mine tell me that, you know, my dad's good. Why would he go to hell? You know, it's interesting how when it comes to our own judgment, we like to uh, come up with a new philosophy about how we are to judge. Now, I want you just to think about Judicial system in our, in our uh, state right here. Does our judicial system work that way? So say um, you're driving home today and you end up not coming to a complete stop at that stop sign, you roll through it. And uh, the, the police officer, which, uh, um, you know, be nice to them, they're, they're hardworking, they're, they're <laughs> he pulls you over. And he writes you this nice ticket 
and then ask for your autograph, and you sign on it. And when you sign, you're not admitting guilt, you're just promising to appear. And then you appear, you have a court date on there, and you show up in court, and you stand up before the judge there, and he's sitting at the bench, and he says, Your Honor, I have driven through that stop sign over 10,000 times. Every time I've hit that stop sign, I've stopped completely behind the limit line, and then I've proceeded through. But just this one time, I was in a hurry, and yeah, I ran through the stop sign. What do you think the judge would say? Guilty. Guilty. Here's your fine. Pay it. You know, you can go into each. Our own judicial system doesn't even work in this scale thing. You kill someone, it doesn't matter how many years you've lived without killing someone, you're going to be tried for murder. You steal, you rob a bank, you're going to be tried for the crime that you committed. The penal code is written not so that you evaluate the whole life and say, well, you paid for that merchandise 500 times, therefore you get one theft free. It's, you're guilty. And it's interesting because God works the same way. You can be a 99% perfect. Sin one time and God's going to punish that sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One sin, the cost of one sin is eternal damnation in hell because of the justness of God. This, this is the reality of it. No matter how we want to do the tipping scale, that, that's all man-made from Satan to try to, to, to trick you into not believing that the Jesus died for your sins. There's only two possible solutions at the end of the road. You take the wide road, you roll your dice and hope this tipping thing, this tipping scale is going to work, which is not. It's going to lead to destruction. And you're going to stand before the great white throne of judgment. There's going to be a judge that's sitting on there, and he's going to ask you, what have you done? And the books are going to be open, and everything's going to be revealed in your whole life. And it's going to be shown how you rejected Christ as your Savior. It's going to be shown all the wicked works you've done, all the evil thoughts, the lying, the stealing, everything, the cheating. And the righteous judge is not going to have Johnny Cochran or anyone else to sit there and try to persuade him differently. He's going to say guilty. Books are open. It's a done deal. There's no deceiving the judge. There's no getting around it. God, as a righteous God and a just God, must punish sin absolutely in its entirety with no grace or mercy. And if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will pay for those sins, the penalty of your sins for all of eternity. Now here's the other road. Here's the narrow road where you still have the same just God. You still have the same righteous God, but he turns that wrath and that anger towards sin and all the penalty towards the Lord Jesus Christ and on that cross of Calvary, he struck the Savior. An entire punishment in hell is intensified on those three dark hours on the cross so that God can now say, I'm satisfied. See, no one else can go do it, the Lord Jesus did. He had to be not only man, but he had to be God. Man to represent us, God because the, 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 the cost of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ of God has of infinite value. It can redeem an infinite amount of people. As John Wesley wrote, that thou, my God, should die for me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who, is a, who was dead, yet alive forevermore. How does he die? 
It's a spiritual death in which he was separated from a holy, righteous God, and the wrath of sins was poured out in full upon the Son of God. And he paid it in full. What an amazing, righteous God we have. That in Romans chapter 3, it can go on because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the just and the justifier, the one that has faith in Jesus Christ. And the minute that you believe, you place your faith and trust that Jesus died for you on the cross, you then are imparted the righteousness that Christ had. The perfect one died for us. How serious is God about sin? So serious that he would send his son to die for us. If you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to do so for today. I wouldn't wait one second longer. For the minute you die, that's it. That's it. You, you await the judgment. Those of us that are saved and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Bank on that. That's beautiful. And God who cannot lie. You look at these attributes and you go back. God cannot lie. He, he, what he says is true. And he's able to do it. It's an amazing God we have. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. If you look at Romans chapter 2, we're not going to turn to there, but read through there and you'll see the judgment of God. You'll see the impartiality. You'll see that God is, is fair. He's not going to judge the Gentile based upon the, the laws that were given to Israel. He's going, to base, he's going to judge you based upon the light and the revelation that was given to you. And right now, those that are sitting in here, we have a lot of light, a lot of revelation that we're accountable towards. And as well, the Christian can go on and apply some of these things to the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, where the rewards and so forth, in which God has given us things to live for him, and we either bury them, don't use them, or we go out and use them for his glory and honor, and he rewards us. So we have a righteous God, a just God, who's going to judge the world according to his own righteousness without partiality, with being fair, the light and the revelation that he's given to you as well as what you've done. But if you're a believer, you're not going to step foot before the great white throne of judgment. We're going to miss that. And praise the Lord, because the Lord Jesus Christ paid that judgment. The last attribute I have here, well, a couple of minutes to finish up. We've already talked about a little bit, is the sovereignty of God. And I know some theologians may not apply this as an attribute, but it's God, his, his entire attributes makes him sovereign. I actually, uh, since I'm speaking, I got the liberty to put it where I want. So I list it as an attribute, because it's a characteristic of God that God will never be ruled. He cannot help but be the supreme ruler. And he's in absolute control of everything. Look at Psalms, verse 135. We've got an amazing God who is in absolute complete control. The word sovereignty means a chief, the ruler, the one who's in absolute control of all things. He is a supreme ruler. This is who he is. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth. 
in the seas and in all the deep places. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Having predestinated, predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Drop down to uh, verse 11. And him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We can go on and, and read a lot more verses, but um, as well as in Romans 8, uh, verse 28. We're out of time here. The thing I would say about the sovereignty of God is he is in absolute control. And we know from his, his omniscience and his power and everything else that who God is. Trust him with your life. It's not always going to be the answer that you think is best. It's not only the path that you think is, is if I figured it out, I would go down path A, and God sends me down path P. It's not because God doesn't like you. It's not because God wants to punish you. Every choice that God makes, he makes with his infinite wisdom and knowledge, and he makes that choice that will best glorify him and will best benefit you. Ben McDonald often said, he said, if you had the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, you would make every decision the same as God. So a lot of times when we hit those speed bumps, when we go through life and it seems stuff just doesn't make sense. It's all right to say, God, why am I going through this? In this sense to learn. Be careful to say, why, God, as if I don't deserve it. You just trust him. You lay it at his feet and you trust him. He say, God, you're in control. You know what's best. And I know you're conforming to the image of Christ. I know you, you want what's best for my family. I know you want what's best for my life and for everything. And you have a reason for everything that you do and why you allow certain things to happen. And God does, and we can get into the decrees of God in which his permissive will and his decretive acts are in place, in which he actually makes certain things happen. There's others that he allows. He allows these things to take place. He allows sin to take its effect on our lives. He allows things to go on that we don't fully understand or comprehend. But he's in absolute control. He's never shaking. He's never making the wrong choice. And he even is so sovereign that he takes our stupidity and our bad choices and works them out for the good. It's amazing. God is truly amazing. And one day when we stand in eternity... I think we're going to see all this. We're going to go, just fall out our faces before God. You're amazing, God. You're amazing how you preserved lives. You're amazing. And then when he allows certain things to take place, that makes absolutely no sense. A guy with so much potential. I remember this story that James Dobson told about one time, a guy that was a doctor that had so much potential was going to help the poor and everything else. And a random bullet takes it into his life. And you go, Why? Why not kill this guy over here? That, that, that means nothing. That's human reasoning. God has his reasoning. God is able 
And he does everything perfectly. And we just trust in him. That's it. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, Father, we just thank you that you are God. You alone are God. You, you are not made up by our minds. You, you are not made up by our understanding. But you alone are who you are, irregardless of what we think of you, God. And we thank you for being God. You are in absolute control of each one of our lives. Father, we know and we, we know we can trust you. But oftentimes it's difficult. We know you can save today. We know that you can change lives today. We know your, your power is limitless. Father, may we just trust you with our lives, with this assembly, and that you will work your will out within us and everything be according to your will. Just thank you for this day. Thank you for each and every saint. Bless each and every one of them. In the name of Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.